Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. It was nice to see you recently in good old Los Angeles. <laughs> it's a good time of year to visit. Absolutely. So today I want to talk about the Ebola virus and breastfeeding. And you're going to talk about marijuana, which I think should be very interesting. And maybe mm-hmm. we'll follow up with um, one or two other things. So I think I'll start um, with a conversation about the Ebola virus because um, there have been some recommendations that have come out on breastfeeding while a woman has Ebola virus. And what I want to talk about um, are guidelines that came from the Emergency Nutrition Network, which is an international uh, recommendation um, in line with UNICEF. Um, we do have one through the, C- through the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, but I feel like that one's a little bit more vague, probably because we haven't dealt with really Ebola here with breastfeeding women. And I think that the Emergency Nutrition Network has a more very specific recommendation for women who are breastfeeding. So first of all, what they say is that the Ebola virus is present in breast milk. And um, they, they know that some women who have breastfed their babies while they have Ebola um, have had babies who have died of Ebola as well, but they don't know for sure if the babies acquired the Ebola through breast milk or if it was through the pregnancy, if the baby was very young, or if it was through other contacts with mom, like her other body fluids. But they do know that uh, the virus is present in breast milk. And the recommendation or the evidence indicates that the mortality risk of Ebola outweighs the morbidity and mortality associated with artificial feeding. Um, So what they say is that for um, moms who have Ebola but the babies are asymptomatic, that it's actually better to uh, have the baby be formula fed and be separated from mom than for the baby to continue to breastfeed since um, Ebola is such a deadly virus. But if the baby's breastfeeding, mom has Ebola and the baby has symptoms of Ebola, it's probably a good idea to test the baby to see if the baby has Ebola. Um, But then the baby should, assuming that the baby has Ebola, the baby should continue to breastfeed because then at that point with a sick baby, the baby's better off receiving breast milk than receiving artificial feeding. Mm -hmm. Um, If the... um, uh, so again, if the baby, if the baby's breastfeeding, if mother, if the mother is has Ebola and the baby is asymptomatic, then again they recommend separating um, the baby. Um, if the mom is, if the if mom and baby are both sick, 
it's important that mom be supported to make sure that she's still really able to breastfeed because she might be too sick to breastfeed. And if she's too sick to breastfeed, the baby will need replacement feeding. And I should mention that replacement feeding in this particular recommendation, because they're dealing with what's happening in West Africa, um, is canned, the canned ready-to-feed formula as opposed to powdered formula just because of the risk of the water supply there. They actually don't recommend wet nursing um, as the next option because the wet nurse um, may be exposed to a baby who's sort of a um, a case that has to who has to be watched. So if a baby is asymptomatic and is taken away from a mother who has Ebola, the baby's at risk for obviously developing Ebola. And during those twenty one days of of observing, um, it's possible that the baby could transmit the virus um, to the wet nurse. So it's recommended that wet nursing happen only if there are no options for replacement feeding, you know, in very dire situations, should that baby be um, wet nursed. It's a really tough situation, hard choices. Horrible, yeah. And so then uh, they mentioned that if... um, and so actually they recommend for babies who are under six months to have, re- to have formula um, with, you know, canned formula as we know it are ready to feed. And then for babies over six months, it's okay to use an animal milk um, as long, and they recommend having that animal milk pasteurized. Um, if a mother recovers from Ebola and she would like to reestablish breastfeeding, it's strongly recommended that she do so. But it's actually recommended that she be that her blood test be negative, and that uh, her breast milk be tested, which I guess is um, available in many areas of West Africa. And it's recommended that they ha- that she have the breast milk tested um, twice on two to three two, three days in between times to make sure it's negative. But if she does not have access to having her milk tested, then it's recommended that she actually wait eight weeks after she recovers before she breastfeeds because they just don't know how long the virus lasts. And they do believe that the virus will hang out in the breast milk much longer than um, the time that it's evident um, in the blood. Hmm. Um, one other thing is about newborns. So the newborn thing is a little bit hard to interpret. It's recommended that if a mother just gave birth and she has Ebola, that her baby continue to nurse, that her baby nurse and not be separated. And I, my impression from that, um, there's no greater explanation of why they say that, but my impression is that the baby is so very likely to develop Ebola because the baby was in utero when mom had symptoms that it's just assumed that the baby is going to have symptoms and then it would be treated like a baby who has symptoms. So there aren't exact, you know, recommendations about, like, there aren't exact details on that. So if a baby, let's say, is five days old and mom develops Ebola, you know, that is still a newborn baby. Um, so it's the term newborn um, is, is not described or they don't say, like, peripartum. So that would probably be up to, you know, the healthcare providers who are working with the mom. So that's yeah, and we know that the incubation period is you know up to twenty one days. Right. So certainly that's a that's a pretty long time for exposure to happen in utero if mom develops symptoms even shortly after the birth. Right, right, right. Yeah, so it's a very 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 sad situation. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm glad that we talked about that because it's affecting a lot of people. And uh, now we're going to turn to something that is 
affecting more and more people um, in the United States and, and I suspect internationally as well, um, which is the, the use of marijuana um, by women who are breastfeeding. And um, we're recording this the day after Election Day in the United States, and more um, the District of Columbia, um, Washington, D.C., and um, another state, I believe, gosh, I just looked this up, Oregon, um, legalized marijuana. And that adds to the, I think, 23 states that had already legalized marijuana in some form, Mm -hmm. um, either medical or recreational use in the United States. And so um, it's really, while it has been um, a drug that has been used by some pregnant and lactating women for a while, I think um, we're seeing an increased incidence of it here. And I recently had a patient who came to me. It was a new patient to me, a two-month-old baby. And when I was interviewing her mom and asking her the, you know, her past medical history and what medicines she uses, um, she told me that she smokes marijuana. And she did this um, under a medical marijuana card while she was pregnant and has continued to do so since delivering the baby. Um, just once or twice a month since she delivered. And it really got me thinking about what is the literature um, behind this and and is there an increase with the legalization going on. So I got started in doing some digging. And it's a tough subject because there really is very limited evidence and some of it is contradictory. So um, studies tell us that about 4% of women in the U.S., use, we used to say, illicit drugs, although <laughs> marijuana isn't always illicit in this right. circumstance, yeah. while they're pregnant. And 75% of those um, cases report the use of marijuana. And, sorry, despite the um, widespread use of this product, the public isn't necessarily aware of the potential neurobehavioral effects of the drug on the fetus or the newborn infant. And so recently there was a really high-profile case in Oregon where a mom who was using um, medical marijuana during her pregnancy delivered a premature baby eight weeks early, and um, she intended to continue using marijuana while breastfeeding her baby. And the hospital um, asked her to sign a waiver that she had um, understood the risks of this. And I thought this was really interesting because it made the national news here, and there were several different reports, and I saw notes where she had been interviewed and said, well, it doesn't get into the breast milk. And I thought, wow, wow. that's not true. So I wonder how well she read that waiver that they had her sign or whether or not anybody actually explained it to her. And, you know, sometimes when we do consents or waivers, people don't do a good job explaining it. So I think the the first thing that is well known is that Marijuana is absorbed um, from the blood into breast milk, and it's actually been shown to be concentrated in breast milk because it is um, very lipophilic, meaning that it's attracted to fats, it's stored in fats. And so um, it has been seen in one study to be uh, um, eight times higher in breast milk wow. than it is in the blood. Wow. And... Um, in addition, studies have shown that breast milk with marijuana in it that is um, 
baby's drink, that marijuana is absorbed by the baby's gut, and it can be um, found when we test their blood or their urine for marijuana. So there is definitely evidence that um, marijuana is transferred when it's ingested by moms or smoked um, into breast milk and that it's absorbed by infants. The dose that um, babies have when we do blood tests is lower than that that we would expect to cause the clinical effects of euphoria and mood change and hallucinations that are associated with um, marijuana use um, in adults. But the real question is whether or not it is enough um, to alter long-term neurobehavioral functioning. And I think that, that that question really remains to be seen. And I'm going to touch on just a couple of studies that talk about this and say that there is definitely more research needed. And one of the things that's happening right now, partly as a result of the legalization process, is that different states, Colorado, for instance, has legalized recreational marijuana and they're getting tax dollars from this. And one of the things that they're hoping to do is take some of that tax money and fund research oh, that's to cool. help to understand what the effects are of on um, fetuses and on um, children who are that's, exposed from pregnancy and, and through breast milk. That's great. Um, so, but it's, it takes a long time because a lot of these studies, they really want to see not just the short-term effects, but even the effects on those babies when they're teenagers and when they're adults. Right. So one of the studies that is available to us is a 2012 review article called Marijuana Use and Breastfeeding from the Journal of Clinical Lactation. And um, this talks about a few different um, studies that were done. Um, the active ingredient in marijuana is THC. There are also more than 400 compounds present. And so, um, interestingly now, there is synthetic marijuana. And one of the things I wanted to mention in here briefly is that some of the studies are quite old, and marijuana has changed Um what's available commercially has changed over the past few decades. It has become more potent. And so one problem with these studies is that there isn't necessarily consistent dosing in the test and that um, it's sort of not your mother's marijuana. It's stronger now. And so the effects may be be different. I can tell you it's so much different than when I was a kid. (laughs) I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, you people would like smoke two or three bowls of marijuana at a time and be like, oh, that stuff wasn't so good. And it'd be homegrown or whatever. And that's exactly what I'm thinking the whole time that you're talking about this is how now it's like one hit and people are like, whoa, that's all I need is one hit, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that was really interesting when I was doing research about the effects in Colorado, they formed a task force on retail marijuana in Colorado and and reported all of these different um, sort of consequences of legalization. And there have been some significant consequences in terms of increased um, poisonings and children reporting to ERs with accidental ingestions mm-hmm. from all of a bunch of different food and candy products that contain marijuana and lots of pet um, poisonings due to this. Um, yeah. And so certainly there is just, there's just a lot more out there than there used to be. Right. So right. Um, there was a 2006 study from Helen Hartman that showed that um, Marijuana use during lactation can affect brain development in the growing infant. 
And there are a few other studies that um, looked into um, effects on memory and on verbal development, and there are some mixed results as to whether or not they, um, there were adverse effects, but some studies at least have shown an adverse effect. Um, and even after, I think, let's see, the 1985 10A study followed children for four years and showed significantly lower scores in memory and verbal domains. So there definitely are some negative effects, and we could go through a few more studies, but I think for me, having read this, the challenge that I face is the same one that is sort of brought out in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine's clinical protocol, number 21, which is guidelines for breastfeeding and drug-dependent women about providing support to mothers who want to breastfeed and use marijuana, either recreationally or medically, that this is very challenging. We know that infants can be at risk for physical and developmental difficulties. However, we also know they can benefit from human milk and breastfeeding. And trying to figure out, you know, beyond counseling abstinence to patients, what to do in terms of deciding who to recommend, you know, wow, you are a daily chronic user who smokes eight times a day, I don't think you should be breastfeeding. By the way, I don't think you should be caring for a child. Well, like, that's that's one of the big issues with a lot of the illicit drugs like heroin and cocaine. At that point, they yeah. shouldn't be caring for an infant. Yeah. Absolutely. But what's really interesting to me, having lived in several different states, is that depending on where you are, it can be treated very differently. So, for example... Where I trained in Florida, we had many, many mothers who would screen positive for marijuana at delivery, and while their decision-making process to use that while they're pregnant is very different than, you know, what I went through when I was pregnant, it wasn't necessarily considered cause to, say, remove the child from their care because it's such a pervasive problem, and they just didn't have the resources Mm -hmm. to address it in that fashion, whereas... If a mom were to test positive um, for another substance, they might have um, more significant intervention um, from social services. Where I worked in L.A., we had a really wonderful follow-up clinic for drug-dependent mothers that allowed them to be followed and drug tested, the children to be watched closely. And I think in that circumstance, breastfeeding can actually help motivate moms to limit their substance use when they are taught that it gets into the milk. But I feel a lot safer in that situation if there's also drug testing being done and support and counseling of the mothers um, to help them meet those goals. Right. Um, And so there are... um, So in that hospital in L.A., there were providers who said, oh, this mom has tested positive for marijuana, she cannot breastfeed. And I found that problematic as well because, you know, some of these moms, it's their fourth or fifth child, they've breastfed them all, she's going to leave the hospital in 48 hours and do what she wants. Absolutely. And so, like me saying, you can't breastfeed right now, all that does is potentially hurt her breast milk supply, which... I just, it's tough. At the same time, you know, moms who are using substances to the point where I think it is, you know, a higher, a daily use, I definitely feel more strongly saying this is not good for your child. Um, And it's hard to to know if you're getting really 
a good history that's true. Um, it's a really, it's a sticky situation. It's sticky. And I think that, um, you know, like with some medications, you can see the effect on the babies. So like if moms are taking a lot of benzos or other medications that are sedating, you can actually see that these babies are not doing well. Sometimes that they're sleepy, they're not transferring milk well, they don't even take a bottle well. Um, or they're mm-hmm. just, or they're having, you know, the neonatal abstinence syndrome where they need to be cared for. And with, it seems like it's a judgment call for every mother. Everyone has to be treated differently because um, if mom is smoking a lot of marijuana, it seems to me that the big, the, the, the only way that you can really legitimately, you know, sort of get social services to take the baby away or, or separate them or have mom stop breastfeeding legally would be if the baby's affected, right? So mm. we can't say, oh, you know, your baby because you're putting your baby's brain at risk, you know, at age 12, because we don't have that research, we can't say you were going to take the baby away. Whereas when you look at moms who are like heroin addicts, cocaine addicts, meth addicts, they don't function. You know, those babies are at risk for neglect. Um, They don't, you know, the parents are clearly unkempt. There's oftentimes no supervision of the children. You know, I mean, it clearly like breaks down at that point. And with marijuana, it doesn't always though. I mean, these people yeah, can function really well. Yeah, it, it, it's a mixed bag. And then, you know, the effects could be, so there have been studies that show that cannabinoid receptors, which THC acts on, um, can play a critical role in initiation of infant sucking. But plenty of babies, because of the intermittent nature of the drug use, you're right, we don't necessarily see a short-term effect. Just like with tobacco smoke, I mean, most people or many people use a smoked form. And so just like tobacco smoking increases the risk of SIDS, mm-hmm. there's a potential that this can increase asthma and SIDS. Mm-hmm. And so I find that after having done this research, I feel a lot stronger in terms of my ability to give moms the reasons why I think that abstinence is important. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think in the past, some providers have been like, oh, it's not that bad. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily feel empowered to um, find out whether or not people are following my recommendations and, what, and, and you know, do something about it, like you're saying. My goal is certainly not to take people's babies away. I, I think that it would be much better for them to to have support to decrease their drug use. Right. And, either the parents that their children need it's just you don't necessarily have we don't necessarily have the social support to follow up and make sure that those things are happening so ideally i would like all of my um, parents to abstain from drug use Um, and in the meantime i think that this research is really important to find out not just you know what the effects are, but also what are the trends? Like, are there tons more moms who are doing this now? And what's the best way to, to target them and get the message out that, you know, there are other ways to treat nausea in pregnancy. And the myth that is on the Internet that smoking marijuana will help your baby's colic is not true. Whoa, that's on the help, Internet? Yes. Wow. It will, help, mm. it will help you not care as much about their colic, right. I suspect. Right. Um, but there's no evidence, and 
And when you Google marijuana and colic, you get this, you know, pot leaf page that says marijuana is safe for breastfeeding. And it's got a study listed from the 80s, you know, one of the few. And so there's definitely some false information out there. And so I think I'm going to be more um, diligent in my screening of moms to Mm -hmm. ask them about this and counsel them. Yeah. Do you have any more cheery topics for us to discuss today? Yeah, well, yeah. I want to talk about this one last topic, which um, is entitled uh, A Pilot Study on the Protein Composition of Induced non Human Milk. So this was a study that looks at the quality of milk among women who induce lactation. Um, they looked at two women who went through processes to lactate despite not being pregnant or giving birth. And for people out there who don't know um, what induced lactation is, it's the bringing in of breast milk when a woman is not pregnant and then delivering and lactating. It's not, this is not uncommon anymore. Um, it's, it's actually a sought after technique for women who are adopting a baby. And also I'm seeing more and more same-sex couples where one mother is pregnant and the other mother would like to help with lactation. Um, And she may have lactated before in the past with another baby, or she may never have conceived and would like to lactate anyway. But the bottom line is that there's very little evidence that describes the biochemical features of milk in these cases of induced lactation. And I have to say, in my own mind, sometimes I wonder, okay, this woman just is inducing lactation. Half of the baby's milk is coming from this um, induced milk. And so what is it really is, you know, I've always wondered, you know, is it the same? And so um, this study sought to dis- look to describe the composition of the total protein in the milk and then some of the key bioactive proteins um, in this milk uh, from induced women. So uh, they looked at, this study was only, uh, only looked at two women, two women who induced lactation and looked at their milk um, weekly over a two-week period, so about eight times. And they looked at the total amount of protein secretory IgA, which is the main antibody that we talk about when we talk about the health effects of breastfeeding, of breast milk, lysozyme and lactoferrin, uh, two other um, proteins. So the the composition, composition of those four factors were compared with the mature milk of three control subjects who were 11 months postpartum. So I should just back up and mention that lysozyme and lactoferrin, um, those are both proteins, and they're, what we know most about them is that they're both anti-infective. The lactoferrin um, kills germs directly, but it also binds iron in order to prevent bacteria from having access to spare iron. And then the lysozyme also kills germs. So what they and found... Did, did they mention how um, long the moms who had induced lactation had been lactating? They didn't mention that. I th- my impression is that as soon as they started having milk come in, like they had gotten up to about um, 64 ml a day approximately, so not very oh, much. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was interested when you said that the other moms had been breastfeeding for a year because we know that milk changes over, you know, along with the baby's age. So that was interesting. Right, exactly. So, right. So um, what they found is that the average amount of protein um, was significantly higher in the induced women compared to the mature milk from the women who were 11 months postpartum. And they found that 
the protein levels gradually declined over the two-month period in the milk from the induced women, pretty much in a similar way that pro, that pro, that milk protein gradually declines in women who give birth and you know just naturally are lactating. Um, they wonder if the that higher protein level may have to do with the fact that these women. Uh, had very little milk, like they were only making a couple ounces a day compared to um, someone who has a great deal of milk. And the reason they, they wondered that is because when women are weaning and their milk supplies really drop quite a bit, um, a lot of the factors will concentrate, and so you see higher concentrations of things like protein. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever that's worth. Um, the secretory IgA levels, which is the antibody, from both the from both of the induced women were pretty close to those seen in the mature milk. The lysozyme um, in one subject um, had levels that were pretty similar to the mature milk, and then the other woman had super low lysozyme levels. The lactoferrin levels were actually higher in the induced women compared to the mature milk. Um, so they concluded that the quality of human milk from a woman who induces lactation appears to be, at least among these factors, pretty physiologically similar in content to um, mature milk from a woman who has given birth natu and naturally has lactated. Um, and they also indicate that what, what they're seeing so far is that the maturation of the milk um, over, um, uh, goes through the normal changes that are seen um, for a woman who's naturally lactating, you know, with the gradual decline, for example, in the protein. So I think we can, just based on that, we can reassure women who are lactating for adoption or for other reasons that the milk is fine. And, you know, I, I've never really seen any difference in growth or I've ever thought, oh gosh, your milk can't be good because there's a problem. Because I've seen some women who've induced a great deal of them, like they're providing two thirds or sometimes a full amount of the milk for the baby and the babies grow fine. You know, it's all about volume. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is uh, interesting and reassuring uh, that the milk is, is fine. Yeah, that was an interesting study. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll see more of it. It's a little tricky to, to get women yeah, to Yeah, your end of two is always... <laughs> An end of two... Let's study it more. Yeah, I think we definitely need more, especially um, as you have higher volumes, you know, then it would be more of a fair comparison. Um, mm -hmm. And also the difference between women who have never who have never conceived, you know, who have no very little breast glandular differentiation compared to someone who's already been through pregnancy yeah. and lactation already, that person's going to have much more differentiation of the tissue. And did they talk at all about um, what method was used to um, induce lactation? I don't think so. Um, I have to look back at the article, but I don't think that uh, they went into detail. They went more into no. detail over exactly how they analyzed the different factors. One of the things that I've talked to some other um, physicians about is, you know, when you're trying to help a mom to induce lactation, time, it's nice to have time on your side um, because it takes a little while for moms to um, develop uh, a supply. And so sometimes moms will be on, you know, hormonal therapy for almost as long as they would have been on a you know, if they'd been or almost as long as they would have been pregnant to try to help the body get ready, and then um, sometimes it's a very short process when 
people find out they're going to finally be able to adopt, and I wonder if that has any effect as well. Yeah, 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 because they would get more opportunity to have those breast changes the longer they can go. Um, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I, um, yeah, the adoption thing is really tricky because a lot of women don't know when they're going to get a baby unless it's mm-hmm. planned and they, you know, it's a, like a private adoption or something like that. But for, with a lot of the agencies, they have no idea. And so that's always tricky when I'm working with them. But with the, the, the issue with the same sex couples, uh, that, that becomes very interesting because, um, often, so one mother wants to induce lactation, the other mother, the other mother is going to deliver and the one who's inducing lactation really wants to have the baby at her breast, but the problem is is that the one who gave birth really needs to establish lactation, so needs to have that baby at the breast as oh. much as possible. So it becomes, you know, this long sort of drawn out, you know, how is this going to work situation? Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's that, but it's fun because they're both, you know, both mothers are very enthusiastic, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I want heard to make that, it work. I- story once of a, it was a similar situation, but the, the, the birth mother was having twins. And so it was two babies, four breasts. Ah. <laughs> worked out really well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. And I've had, um, I've had seen some situations where the birth mother had insufficient glandular tissue and the other mother who didn't give birth gave birth previously um, and actually was the one to be the major milk producer. So it's just a wonderful situation, you know, in, when a mother does have something terrible happen, like insufficient glandular tissue, to have someone else that can be there for the baby. So it's actually a pretty, wow. it can be pretty cool. For those of you who are listening, please like us at our uh, Facebook page, the Best Feeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page. And if you have any questions for us, please contact us through Facebook. Well, Karen, have a great flight. Thanks. I'll see you soon. Take care. Okay, bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.